Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We just mentioned Hario. Hario. <laughs> it's a me, a Hario. Oh, fuck. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And welcome to part three of our discussion of the seventh Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. This is it. The last book. We're done. Podcast over. See you never, witches. <gasps> That's right. There are definitely no more movies after this. No more material for minisodes or extended universe episodes. Absolutely nothing left to discuss about Harry Potter. Get ready for an extra long episode because we need to get everything out of our systems. So, for the very last time, let's start out with the sorting chat. Everybody dies. Oh my god. Oh my god, everybody died. I have, so I read the last 300 or so, 350 pages of this book entirely in one sitting yesterday, and I finished the final page and like closed the book and just had to sit quietly for a while feeling deeply emotionally devastated. <laughs> it's really, it's really something because the first chapter we read, so in the last episode we discussed right up until the end of the Deathly Hallows chapter and started in a Malfoy Manor. So we this, this segment started off with Dobby dying mm -hmm. and then just really just elevated that body count Ew. holy shit i cried when dobby died oh my god oh my god i don't i i don't know anymore how many times i've read this book and i still like cried like a little baby who like lost dobby for the first time yeah. it was so sad oh man and the beautiful like luna's words for him <laughs> you're just so beautiful the elf swayed slightly stars reflected in his wide shining eyes and i wrote the word stop above that because it was too much harry caught him and laid him sideways in the cool grass dobby no don't die don't die the elf's eyes found him and his lips trembled with the effort to form words Potter. And then with a little shudder, the elf became quite still, and his eyes were nothing more than great glassy orbs sprinkled with light from the stars they could not see. You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> I'm literally crying right now. You're a monster. I know, I'm a monster. 
I think the reason why Dobby's death is so profound and heartbreaking is because he was so scared to go back to the Malfoy Manor. But he went back anyway to save his friends. Oh, You should cry a little more, Hannah. Stop it. <clears throat> the part that really got me when I was reading that was the image of everybody burying him in their clothes and the scene where Ron sits down on the edge of the grave and takes off his socks and shoes and puts them on Dobby. Oh, God. <laughs> Just like that moment of them dressing him to bury him. Just, I'm still, I'm crying right now. I mean, it's just. It's too sad. <laughs> it's too sad. Too sad for a children's book. So the the next major loss that we sustain, I believe, is Fred. And this was the, this one actually made me cry harder. And it was because, again, this is my first time reading this book. I wept quite hard at Percy's reunion with his yeah. family. To have Fred's death follow so quickly upon the first moment in a long time and the last moment ever that all the Weasleys will be together. And they get such a brief reunion. And then it's Fred and Percy together, which was in a lot of ways more powerful, I think, than if it had been Fred and George together. Oh, yeah. Because it was like the family back together and Fred saying, Percy just made a joke. Mm -hmm. um, and Fred saying to Percy, like, oh, I haven't heard you make a joke in ages. Mm -hmm. And it's right in that moment. And it's just, you know what? You know what, Rowling? What did the Weasleys do to you? <laughs> I, I can't remember where I heard this. Maybe it was one of those internet meme things, but um, someone somewhere pointed out that the Weasley twins are only apart twice in the entire series, and the first time is when George's ear gets cursed, and the second time is when Fred dies. Obviously, it's their fault. <laughs> you should have known better. You should have learned. <laughs> Never split up. Mm. Oh, oh. If I can. Yes, please. The reunion when Percy gets there. I know we're going to talk about Fleur later, but I just, I want to give, I want to give Fleur the biggest shout out in the history of time for being as uncomfortable with silences as I am. Because when Percy arrives and the Weasley family is just like shocked, the book says there was a long moment of astonishment broken by Fleur turning to Lupin and saying in a wildly transparent attempt to break the tension, so Owie's little daddy. <laughs> and then Lupin just being like, yes, yep, no, we're definitely going to go with this. Oh, I have a picture. Do you want to see the picture? But that was also, it's a moment of comic relief. Yeah. Lupin's going to die really soon he's that moment when he looked at that picture that's probably the last time he's ever gonna see his oh, kid god yeah you're welcome <laughs> also i don't know what do you think of the fact that lupin and tonks like mm. die off screen so to speak that Harry's gone and he comes back and they're just, they're just gone. Yeah. That was like, that was one of the most devastating things for me because so at the end of the Battle of Hogwarts chapter, um, that's when Fred dies. And the beginning of the Elder Wand, it says, 
The world had ended, so why had the battle not ceased? The castle fallen silent in horror, and every combatant laid down their arms. Harry's mind was in free fall, spinning out of control, unable to grasp the impossibility, because Fred Weasley could not be dead, the evidence of all of his senses must be lying. And that moment, which is like, in the midst of life, death doesn't make any sense. And I think that that really resonates well with what then happens, right? Like that the deaths also happen when he's not around, mm-hmm. right? That they just like, they're not always going to happen while you're there. They also just, you know, happen totally out of your sight and out of your control. And it feels anticlimactic, but I think that this book series has this amazing capacity for like taking major deaths and making them anticlimactic mm-hmm. in this totally devastating way. And I mean, to some degree, that's necessary in order to avoid grief fatigue. It would almost become comical if every time Harry entered a room, somebody who he loved (laughs) profoundly, like, died. And then he was like, why? Why? (laughs) Yeah, like the tragedy of Lupin and Tonks dying off, off stage or off screen or behind the scenes is kind of necessary for the effect of the deaths that we're there for. Yeah. I don't like the fact that Fred dies. Fred's death is one of the ones that um, haunts me the the most all these all these long years after the Battle of Hogwarts ended. But his death is one of the ones that I find the least undignified because he dies while battling after reuniting with his brother and doing what he loves most which is like making jokes with his siblings Mm -hmm. and harry sees that fred's last laugh was like on his face in the moment of death so he died he died happy despite the fact that they're in the middle of the war and so like i i'm glad for that whereas i feel like i'm i'm very doubtful that in the moment of death Remus and Tonks would have been like, listen, let's talk about our relationship. We've like got some stuff to figure out. <laughs> it just occurred to me there's another death that we haven't talked about. Oh no, we're gonna get in trouble. Uh crab. <gasps> oh yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and crab crab who's shooting killing curses at Hermione. I mean, it's just interesting to take the a lot of the same dynamics that were already happening in Hogwarts in terms of characters and personalities and then just raise the stakes hugely so that, you know, the people who were doing really risky things die from those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who were violent and sociopathic become murderers. It's Crab who creates the the fiend fire, the fiend fire yeah. that ultimately kills him. Yeah. The sort of childish dynamics with adult consequences. Mm-hmm. But that's also a pretty horrible death. I don't know what to make of it. Um, I guess the thing about bullies is that like not all bullies escalate in terms of the violence that they enact, but some of them do, mm-hmm. and some of them do go on to kill people. Um, so Crab being a bully and then becoming a murderer. It's I think it's it's hard. It's hard to see someone who this is a weird thing to say because this is a book, but it's hard to see someone who you've known since they were a child turn into a murderer. Yeah. 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 That's the that's what makes me want to talk about Crab's death and not particularly want to talk about, you know, Bellatrix's death. Oh, because that's somebody you only ever encountered as a villain. But Crab was somebody who you saw as an 11 year old Mm -hmm. who was 
like a bully Mm -hmm. yeah but 11 year olds are bullies and then grow up to be functioning adults Mm -hmm. and 11 like he's only 17 when he dies like that's still a point past which people do grow up this book is devastating yes Okay, well, this is it. Our last chance ever to talk about print culture and the materiality of text. Um, let's, I guess, pay our final visit to Flourish and Blots. I, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not a ton, right? Like this last part of the book has all of a sudden lost its interest in, <laughs> in print culture. But that's also, I think that's significant in some ways because the first two thirds of the book are all about mediation and mediated relationships and distance right like harry's distance from dumbledore and how their relationship is mediated via text harry's distance from lily and how that's mediated through the letter he finds Mm -hmm. um but also our protagonist's distance from the action of what's happening and how that also needs to be mediated through textual representations and the final third of the book is about contact and immediacy and direct experience and so text doesn't play that role anymore right he gets to see his mother he gets to say goodbye to dumbledore like he gets all of those encounters there is there's one moment and it's a moment that really struck me because in some ways i feel like it's sort of an artist's statement Mm -hmm. um that it is a sort of commentary on the book series as a whole and what they've been doing dumbledore says His knowledge remained woefully incomplete, Harry. That which Voldemort does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend. Of house elves and children's tales, of love, loyalty, and innocence, Voldemort knows and understands nothing. That they all have a power beyond his own, a power beyond the reach of any magic, is a truth he has never grasped. Which is a claim about the particular power that resides in children's literature. Mm -hmm. Which is acclaim itself about this series of texts and about like about taking children's stories seriously mm. and about treating them as as powerful stories but also as deeply political stories that also seems really like a really powerful claim to me that can reflect on the series as a whole mm-hmm. i definitely think you're right about that um i i noticed it when i was reading it and wasn't really sure what to make of it and was too busy being sad about everything to really think about it too hard oh like this passage we're talking about suggests a kind of awareness of the kinds of critiques, the kinds of ongoing cultural disdain that we have towards children's lit and YA. Um, I mean, you still see that douchey white guys write op-eds in newspapers and magazines all the time talking about how the rise of YA reading amongst adults is a sign of like both intellectual and moral failing because YA fails to be, you know, adequately morally sophisticated and complex <sighs> yeah so it's, it's interesting at the end of this series to have that kind of defense saying mm-hmm. outright you know people who don't take children's stories seriously are the same kinds of people who don't take children seriously mm-hmm. but who also don't take all kinds of subjects seriously mm-hmm. uh, like house elves um and therefore should not be trusted so Tom Riddle then, were he an academic, would be the kind of academic who would only study white British men. Mm. Maybe some white Americans? Men? I think Tom Riddle. Tom Riddle would definitely study like canonical white literature. 
I think Tom Riddle would be really, really into archival research. He would want to find the previously unpublished. Mm. I think he would be into modernism. We know that modernism is fascism. It's just fascist literature. I think he would be he would be the guy who's really excited to figure out Ezra Pound's role Mm. in editing T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland Mm. because he wants to believe that he is special and unique and discovering things that nobody else is. Mm -hmm. That sort of heroic model of scholarship. I'm going to find out who it is who actually figured that out because I just accused them of being the Voldemort of literary criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready to get 100% of your critical reading skills out of your system? Because this is our last chance to talk about Harry's limited narrative perspective in The Boy Who Narrated. I would really like to start by saying that I found the all throughout the book, but especially um, especially in the segment when they go to Gringotts, I found the fragments of what's happening in the wizarding world underneath Voldemort's ascension to power incredibly haunting and much more um, much more disturbing than if the book was taking place like directly in the midst of that like shift in um social dynamic in particular we now see what has happened to those wizards and witches who have had their wands taken away from them um by the ministry so like we we sort of like miss the everything in between right we were at the ministry we see these people who are being um accused of stealing their wands and then all of a sudden we see them begging in the streets so like we didn't see how they got from one point to the other but i feel like that's almost it's almost more haunting to all of a sudden see these people who are now referred to as the wandless which is just so disgusting yeah it's an interesting way to depict um the sort of deterioration of quality of life under a fascist regime because when you're living within a system like this or a government like this I think that it is easy to not notice your rights getting slowly stripped away bit by bit. Um, And you can sort of like fascism can can and often does sneak up on people. Mm -hmm. Um, But because Harry is outside of society for most of this book, living in the woods, he just sort of pops back in from time to time. Mm -hmm. And it's so jarring to watch how quickly it descends, you know, from business as usual with a little bit of corruption at the ministry to an outright sort of regime in which in which people are mm-hmm. wandless and homeless and there's a clear underclass. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's something really haunting about that. We have a similarly haunting experience, I think, of um, when Harry returns to Hogwarts mm-hmm. and finds out what life, what has been happening at Hogwarts for this whole year. This is the first and only book that takes place outside of Hogwarts, but Hogwarts has still been there. And most of our protagonists have still been at Hogwarts and they've just had no idea. Harry's just had no idea what's been going on for them. So Mm. when he comes back, when he comes back to Hogsmeade and Neville shows up, that's when Harry gets to find out what life has been like at Hogwarts for his friends, which is that it has been totally horrifying. Mm -hmm. But again, there is something really jarring about finding it out from Harry's perspective and finding out that, you know, I think he knew things were bad, but he didn't know how bad they were Mm -hmm. um, and couldn't have known how bad they were for, for students like Neville. 
Uh, you had some things you wanted to say about Neville. I just can we just gush about <laughs> Neville for a few minutes because, as our listeners know, we love Neville yeah. so much. Oh my God, bless Neville! He has had such a hard time throughout these books, and this is when he becomes a hero. And like, I don't just mean because he cuts the head off the snake and like destroys the final Horcrux. I don't even mean that. I mean the fact that he, he and Luna and Ginny revive Dumbledore's army. They stood up against the Caros and um, and fought against the like violence that was taking place at the school. But what I'm finding especially heartwarming is the fact that Neville believed in Harry the whole time. He he tells them that some people thought that Harry was on the run and Neville never believed it. He always believed in Harry. And then especially when he says that standing up to abusive power helps other people resist. And then he says, I used to notice that when you did it, Harry. And I was just like, oh my God, Neville, you and Harry are the same. You're the same. You two are a hero. You have it in you. And the fact that when Neville's grandmother shows up and is like, have you seen my grandson? And they're like, we think he's fighting. And she's like, naturally. And that goes to help. I mean, that whole, that revelation that the entire time that Harry has not been at Hogwarts, Neville has been at Hogwarts doing exactly what Harry would have been doing there, mm-hmm. right? Which is also the revelation that lots of people are being heroes. Yeah. Um, it's not just Harry, which really culminates in that line when Harry is insisting that the rest of the students can't help, mm. Um that he has to do this on his own, that nobody else can do anything. And Hermione says, you don't have to do everything alone, Harry. Um, Which is, at this point, redundant, because you know what? He hasn't been doing everything alone. Lots of other people have been standing up to this government in lots of other ways. Um, He just doesn't know most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes because he doesn't pay attention, or he doesn't think about forms of heroism that are not his own. But also because sometimes he just doesn't have access to that information. He just didn't know what was happening at Hogwarts. Yeah. Nor did we. Yeah. Speaking of Harry not doing things alone, mm-hmm. I think it's worth pointing out Ron's several good ideas. Because we we said in the first episode about this book that Ron often has good ideas. He just rarely executes them. Other people execute them on his behalf. Mm-hmm. But in this section, Ron has, uh, he has, I, I marked three, but I can only remember two off the top of my head. And one is in this moment when Neville is like, we want to help, or all of the, all of Dumbledore's army is there. And they're like, we want to help. And Harry's like, I have to do this alone. And Ron is like, we don't have to tell them that you're looking for a horcrux, dude. You can just like ask for help. You don't have to tell them everything. Good idea, Ron. That's a great idea. And then Ron's other really good idea is going to get the Basilisk Fang to destroy the Horcrux. Like, oh my god, Ron, yes, good, good. It's so amazing to me that um, that Horcrux, Helga Hufflepuff's cup, is destroyed again. I keep saying off screen, but like, Mm -hmm. like it's destroyed. Yeah, off. It's 
it's off camera like yeah. harry is doing something else and then he f- can't find ron and hermione and then he finds them again and they're like hey and then we went into the chamber of secrets it was really cool like ron like figured out how to speak uh parcel tongue and then we got into the chamber and we found the basilisk fangs and then i decided hermione really earned her chance to destroy a horcrux and so she destroyed it with the fang it was all very exciting you didn't see any of it <laughs> We have one of the the sort of journeys that both that Harry has been making, but that we as readers of the series have been making alongside him is increasing awareness of the limitations of his perspective, Mm -hmm. which really culminates in these kinds of scenes Mm -hmm. where major plot points are happening and characters just leave and then come back and are like, no, 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 something really important happened. You weren't there. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the important um, through lines we've been tracking through this particular book is Harry's crisis of faith in Dumbledore. Um, that he has gone back and forth from originally having, um, you know, a huge uh, loss of faith in Dumbledore, and then really sort of wanting to have that restored, but not being sure how he can get back to believing in him and believing in his authority. The thing that triggers him renewing his faith in Dumbledore is um Wormtail oh, yeah. killing himself when the silver hand that Voldemort has given him strangles him mm-hmm. because of his moment of hesitation mm. um which is something that Dumbledore told Harry to anticipate that Wormtail might not be a total villain and might have a change of heart and so that that you know moment when something that Dumbledore said came true then becomes a sort of re-triggering of Harry's faith. There's a moment where they're at Shell Cottage and he is thinking about um, the various ways in which Dumbledore has been correct. And he thinks, you gave Ron the Deluminator, you understood him, you gave him a way back, and you understood Wormtail too. You knew there was a bit of regret there somewhere. And if you knew them, what did you know about me, Dumbledore? Am I meant to know but not to seek? Did you know how hard I'd find that? Is that why you made it this difficult? So I'd have time to work that out. So thinking that maybe Dumbledore knew all about the Hallows, but didn't tell Harry because he didn't want Harry to go after the Hallows. He wanted him to focus on the Horcruxes. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of reinterpretation of everything that's happening from the perspective of faith, Mm -hmm. because faith is... it's a methodology it's a lens of reading all of these events mean something really different if you believe that Dumbledore is the sort of moving hand the invisible hand if you will behind all of it um but and then that faith is challenged really substantially when he meets Aberforth which holy shit that was a total revelation to me because I've never read this book and I don't remember the movie very well and I totally thought that I he was seeing in the mirror was Dumbledore and I was like, where is Dumbledore? What's happening? And then it was totally Aberforth and it blew my mind. <gasps> so Aberforth tells Harry the story of their childhood and of what Dumbledore was, what Dumbledore was like. And that really does shake Harry's faith again, right? It's this moment again of sort of crisis. Um, there's a very funny line from Aberforth Harry says, he left me a job, and Aberforth says, did he now? Nice job, I hope. Pleasant, easy sort of thing you'd expect an unqualified wizard kid to be able to do without overstretching themselves. (laughs) Uh, Ron gave a rather grim laugh. Hermione was looking strained. It's like, ah. And then on the next page, Harry thinks, 
He had made his choice while he dug Dobby's grave. He had decided to continue along the winding, dangerous path indicated for him by Albus Dumbledore to accept that he had not been told everything that he wanted to know, but simply to trust. He had no desire to doubt again. Because doubt shakes you from your path. Doubt makes you wonder whether the path is a path at all or a random series of events. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of faith, the things that you're doing have meaning. From the perspective of doubt... It's a random series of events without a happy ending. And so it seems to me that in this narrative of doubt versus faith, faith wins out Mm -hmm. because ultimately Harry's faith in Dumbledore is rewarded. Mm -hmm. His faith that that path was meaningful, that Dumbledore had a plan, that everything meant something, that he was meant to do what he, what Dumbledore wanted him to do and it would all work out for him that there was a happy ending waiting for him if he only had faith in Dumbledore's godlike abilities, that all comes true, mm-hmm. which ultimately then to me makes this a series about faith. As a faithless person, I'm skeptical of this. <laughs> this is, I think what's really interesting is how like intensely Christian that is mm. versus we'll say Judaic, right? You can read it as a struggle between two different approaches to religion. The approach that's like, I want to doubt constantly. I want to question constantly. Mm -hmm. I want to have, you know, all of the information and move forward in that way, which is not necessarily an atheistic approach. Right. It's just not necessarily a Christian Mm -hmm. approach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, mm, I was going to say that um, doubting constantly is quite exhausting, but I actually don't, I I don't think that that's true. I think that some people find it exhausting. And I think that this is largely why some people gravitate towards certain religions over others, right? Because some religions require you to have unwavering faith and other religions insist that you constantly wrestle with your, wrestle with your faith and wrestle Mm -hmm. with your demons and wrestle with the things that are going wrong. And so, like, the fact that Harry chooses faith in Dumbledore is not necessarily a sign that, like, that is the right choice for everyone to have, but more that that is the right choice for Harry to have. For Harry, choosing to have unwavering faith is the thing that allows him to go forward. And that wouldn't have been the case for everybody. And a lot of this conversation revolves around the question of the status of Harry's last encounter with Dumbledore. Mm. The thing about Harry's faith is that it is rewarded because in the end, he gets perfect knowledge. Mm -hmm. He gets to understand everything that happened um, and it's delivered to him from the mouth of God, essentially. Mm -hmm. But we have learned to be skeptical about narrative perspective in this book and that chapter happens in Harry's head. Mm -hmm. And so we have to ask, is this, is that a moment in which Harry unconscious puts together everything that's been happening? Like, or, you know, weaves for himself a story that ties things together, a version of events Mm -hmm. that makes everything make sense and makes everything rational and manageable and moves forward from there? Or is it actually this sort of semi-divine experience in which he gets to re-encounter Dumbledore and Dumbledore tells him, everything and it's essentially like the end of the divine comedy in which dante ascends into paradise and gets perfect understanding yeah i mean for me it's obvious that this is a story that harry weaves for himself but other people are going to read it differently Mm -hmm. for me 
the right to doubt and the right to doubt anytime and with everything is more important to me than faith. So that's really interesting. If we move forward from that reading, if we say we are not going to take for granted that that chapter actually is Harry meeting Dumbledore, we are going to treat it as being just in Harry's head, which the end of that chapter encourages us to do. It says, Harry says, how do I know this wasn't all in my head? And Dumbledore says, just because something in your head is in your head doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah. Um, so then the other significant aspect of the book that really bears on our reading of that chapter or that our reading of that chapter will bear on is the question of the status of heroism and of Harry as this sort of messianic figure. So in that chapter, Harry finds out that Dumbledore himself was not righteous enough to mm. unite the Deathly Hallows. Um, and Harry is the sort of chosen one who is able to unite these three objects mm -hmm. properly and to use them all properly because he uses them in the right way, which means, you know, that this was ultimately a series about a special, unique, chosen hero mm -hmm. who is more powerful than the two most powerful mm -hmm. wizards in the world who can unite these three special objects and use them to save the world and purify it. But if we interpret that chapter as just in Harry's head, then that's just, it's just egomania. It's <laughs> just, that's just, yeah. it's just, a, just a reminder that even in his moment of triumph, Harry still struggles to disavow himself of those discourses of uniqueness and heroism and specialness and chosenness that we've seen him struggling with throughout the whole book series. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I, I like the idea of Harry being consistent in that aspect as opposed to Harry suddenly overcoming all of his earlier failings in order to be the perfect hero. Right? Like it it yeah. makes more sense to me that he consistently struggles with seeing himself as a hero as opposed to like overcoming that yeah. egomania. Yeah. Yeah, which is then sort of casts some some additional powerful light on the moment when Harry thinks about what Hogwarts has meant for people like him and Voldemort mm -hmm. and Snape, who he calls the lost boys. Mm -hmm. um, because right up until the end, we're being encouraged to see the similarities and differences, particularly between um, Harry and, and Tom Riddle, and seeing how both of them do have this weakness for fantasies of specialness, for fantasies mm -hmm. of power, and that the difference isn't that Harry is perfect and selfless and throws all this stuff away and Voldemort indulges in it. It's that they are both tempted by these narratives mm -hmm. and one does a better job of overcoming them. And mostly he overcomes them through his relationships with other people, not through yeah. inner reserves of strength, but through having a community that calls him on his shit. Mm -hmm. And having the polar opposite there in front of him to see what would happen to him if he made those choices, right? Tom Riddle is, for Harry, he's an ever-present reminder of the logical extension to Harry's bad choices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we get a couple of really concrete examples of that. Um, one is uh, just this amazing, this amazing revelation that 
Tom Riddle's belief in himself as having a special relationship to Hogwarts and having plumbed secrets of Hogwarts that nobody else had ever figured out. And Harry's like, oh my God, how will I possibly figure out the things that Voldemort figured out? And then all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What if this fucker just found the room that we've all been using this entire time? Yeah. And like, God bless Ron when they go in there to find the diadem. And Ron's like, he thought he was the only one to find this room. <laughs> it's literally full of other people's shit. It's like, what did you think it was, Tom? Did you think that it was like a room full of treasures just for you? Was that what you were asking for when you walked back and forth in front of the door? Like, show me a place full of treasures for me. No kidding. It's interesting to see how Voldemort Voldemort is aware of the power of narratives of sacrifice, um, which is why he keeps saying, you know, you just have to give me Harry and I will not kill anybody else. Harry, you are single-handedly handedly responsible for everybody dying. Mm -hmm. And when Harry does appear to have died and Voldemort brings his body back, he insists on saying, oh, he didn't sacrifice himself on purpose. He's not a hero. He was running away. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that is the narrative that is powerful for Voldemort, mm-hmm. is that narrative of sort of specialness and uniqueness and heroism. But we see Harry giving into it, right? Mm-hmm. He keeps thinking about all the people who have died for him as though Voldemort wouldn't have killed anybody mm-hmm. if Harry had not been holding out. <laughs> The whole battle is actually just the battle for Harry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harry. Right. So I love, I mean, it's so fascinating to watch the way in that final scene, the heroism is spread out across all of these different characters, you know, um, mm-hmm. Mrs. Weasley kills Bellatrix, mm-hmm. Neville kills Nagini, uh, Ron and Hermione destroy as many horcruxes as harry does like it is a team effort across the board but right up until the final moments harry still just struggles to stop seeing it as his story as his special journey um as him being this chosen one in a way that that is both fascinating i think makes these texts a lot richer and a lot more nuanced Mm -hmm. but also then makes sense about because there isn't a sort of a straightforward revelation at the end where Harry's like, and then I realized it wasn't all about me and I wasn't special and I wasn't the only person who could use the hallows and everybody can use them and I'm not the final master of the wand. Actually, Hermione's better with this wand. Because that never happens, readers are also not given an easy way through mm-hmm. to challenging this idea of Harry as this messianic figure. Yeah. Yeah. I still have so much to learn about pedagogy in the Harry Potter books. Well, I guess that's that's just too damn bad, though, because today's the final day of potions class. I I don't know if we can do a whole lot with this, but I I I was just really struck by the fact that even though the novel by and large takes place outside of Hogwarts, it still follows the arc of the school year. They still take off before the school year starts. Um, they go through all of their stuff during the school year and then when they would otherwise be having exams they're having a a battle yeah i I do i think that's really significant because ultimately you know this whole book series is a series about 
education and about the role that a school plays Mm -hmm. in these people's lives. It's no coincidence that the epilogue is the moment when they're sending their kids off to school, right? right? Like this, this book series is about Hogwarts and the role that it plays in these kids' lives. And so despite the fact that Hogwarts is absent from the vast majority of this book, it's still the structuring principle behind the narrative. It still mm-hmm. is structured around the school year and it still culminates in this momentous scene at the school, right? And it has to happen at Hogwarts. It couldn't, a final battle couldn't have happened anywhere else. It really had to happen there. It's the sort of completion of his education. Um, though my guess is that realistically, they probably had to go back to school the next year. I should say so. <laughs> like, defeating Voldemort doesn't make you like accredited to be some kind of professional you don't get you don't just like then go on to be the chosen one forever that's not a job you need qualifications harry go back to school so this is great when harry does return to hogwarts we get we learn a lot about the professors in this final chunk of this book Um, about all of the professor characters as people. Um, And we get to see uh, sort of Harry's relationship with them as somebody who is not at school anymore um, and who is sort of relating to them more as an adult. Um, And I think one of the the first sort of powerful representations of that is the scene where um, he's under the invisibility cloak and he's watching McGonagall and Amicus Caro have a confrontation and Caro uh, spits in McGonagall's face, um, which is a super disgusting thing to do. And Harry loses his shit and uses the Cruciatus curse. It's not the first time he's tried it, but it's the first time it's worked. Because it's the first time you meant it. Because it's the first time you meant it. Exactly. Because Bellatrix told him when he tried to use it on her that it doesn't work if you don't really mean it. And that's amazing because, like, you would think he... Bellatrix had just killed Sirius. Mm-hmm. And so to think that he is more meaningfully angry at <laughs> Amicus Caro for spitting in Minerva McGonagall's face than he was at Bellatrix for killing Sirius. I mean, I recognize that that difference is also Harry is older now. He's seen more shit. He's more aware of the stakes. He's gotten a little darker. But it's just... His love for McGonagall is really beautiful to me. Oh, oh my God! There's also in in this in that section when she and the other professors are talking about how to um, like the defenses that they need to put up, and both Slughorn and Flitwick are like, "Well, we won't be able to hold him off forever," and um, and Professor Sprout is like, "But we can try." And she and and she and McGonagall like give each other a look of grim understanding and it was this moment where i was like women know what's up in a way that men don't and it's incredible they really do the one last badass professor moment that i want to mention um is the moment when uh right in the heat of the battle and it's just a little aside um fenrir grayback is going after lavender brown Mm -hmm. and trelawney knocks him out with a crystal ball Mm -hmm. and it was 
that moment, just the fact that it was Lavender Brown and Trelawney coming to her rescue was really powerful to me because the relationship between Lavender Brown and Trelawney as student and teacher has been infantilized and mocked by Harry as a narrator. It was, you know, divination was a silly subject that girls liked and Lavender Brown is our quintessential silly girl character mm-hmm. and Trelawney is a silly teacher and it's all deeply dismissed. Mm -hmm. But that moment in which Trelawney comes to Lavender Brown's defense suggests to me that even though Harry was not paying attention to or valuing that relationship, there was a relationship happening between that student and teacher. Mm -hmm. Lavender's engagement with that subject was meaningful to Trelawney. Mm -hmm. Like, and she cares about her students and she saves her. And that made me really happy. I was also really struck by the fact that Trelawney must have exceptional aim. (laughs) So Harry uses the Cruciatus curse successfully for the first time, but that's just the first example of many, because right after that, McConaughey uses the Imperious curse. Mm -hmm. Um, Later on, we see Mrs. Weasley using Avada Kedavra. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of protagonists using unforgivable curses Mm -hmm. in the Battle of Hogwarts. What do you make of that? Well, McGonagall says we duel to kill. Shit's real now. You know what? And in times of in times of war, laws change. The unforgivable curses are illegal, but there's no like, there's no fucking law right now. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like things that are legal and things that are not legal are not inherently moral. So I mean, I mean, we know this, right? We know that laws change under conditions of war, and that in the wake of war, then you have the trials in which you decide who. Mm-hmm broke the law in a way that was ultimately acceptable based on who won and who committed a war crime, right? And so they're quite likely in this intervening 19 years that we don't see, there were quite likely trials as wizarding Mm -hmm. culture was set back up and they had to figure out who was a criminal and who wasn't. It's significant that Malfoy is there at the train station at the end, right? That the reforms of complicity with Voldemort that were clearly ultimately forgiven. Mm -hmm. And I think rightly so. I think what we see happen to Malfoy is the abuse of a child, not somebody being evil. But I'm sure that there are other people who were not forgiven. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it becomes a matter of like the unforgivable curses. There's maybe a misnomer. Mm -hmm. They are actually, it appears, forgivable from certain perspectives. Mm -hmm. (gasps) So what happens when we get back to Hogwarts is... A sort of recasting of everything that has happened throughout the whole series of books from a very grim war perspective. Um, so the relationship with the professors changes. We already talked about, you know, Harry's relationship to Crab changing, bullying, looking different when the stakes are higher. Um, but we also get the attitudes and differences between the houses getting played out in a very real way, right? Like we've known all along that the other three houses didn't really like the Slytherins and Slytherins mm-hmm. are kind of shitheads. But that gets a lot realer in the moment when we see not a single Slytherin stay behind yeah. to oppose Voldemort. Like, we can say all we want about, like, Slytherin evil being a matter of Harry's perspective. Mm-hmm. But not a single Slytherin student stays behind to help. Do we even see? I don't know if we actually see um, Slughorn? Slughorn in the battle. 
I thought he was there at the end. Maybe. But I can't, I honestly cannot remember. I really don't. It all happens very quickly. Yeah. I have to say that this disappoints me. So throughout this podcast, we have worked really hard, I think, to separate what Harry thinks about the Slytherins from what is objectively true about the Slytherins based on textual evidence. And the fact that none of them stay behind, it disappoints me because I I know that this is a world where there's magic, but I just don't think that that's especially realistic. I think it is really unrealistic that everybody in the Slytherin house is like, well, I'm out. If Voldemort wins, that's bully for me, yeah. you know? Yeah, like everyone, like, I guess that means there are no muggle-born Slytherins or that if you are a Slytherin and muggle-born, you believe that, you know, it's still in your better interest to side mm-hmm. with, with the house. It's just, it just refuses a level of complexity that I think would have been interesting. Yeah. I'm not surprised that not that many Ravenclaws stuck around because Ravenclaws are nerds and nerds don't like to fight. Mm-mm. I fucking love how many Hufflepuffs stay. Yeah. I love it because Hufflepuffs are just like, yeah, absolutely. Except for Zachariah Smith. Yeah, fuck that guy. like pushing first year son of the way in order to leave. <laughs> you, know who, you know which Ravenclaw does stick around? It's our boy. It's Anthony Goldstein. <laughs> I just want to, I just, I think that it's really important to remember how brave Hufflepuffs can be Mm -hmm. because we attribute bravery entirely to Gryffindors, but Hufflepuffs are characterized by loyalty Mm -hmm. and loyalty is its own kind of powerful bravery. If you really, really care about somebody, you will sacrifice yourself Mm -hmm. to help them out. And so it is, I think, really significant that there are almost as many Hufflepuffs as Gryffindors staying behind. Mm So I think that we need to end with conversations about two very significant professor figures mm-hmm. um, who we get some pretty big revelations about in the end of yeah. the book. I want to talk about Dumbledore first because I think that Snape's revelations have been the most impactful mm. in how the series has been received. Yeah. So, okay. So here's what happens with Dumbledore. I mean, we find out about Dumbledore's past that he was, in fact was close friends with Grindelwald, as it turns out, sort of postscript lovers with Grindelwald. Again, P.S. Yeah, I believe that. That's in the text. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely in the text. That he was tempted and seduced by the very discourses and ideologies that Voldemort himself is enacting, Mm -hmm. that he indirectly led to the death of his sister via his complicity with the wizarding version of a white supremacist. Mm -hmm. Um, that he then turned around and used his position of headmaster of Hogwarts to manipulate a young boy into turning him into a human weapon, Mm -hmm. that he lies to people, that he uses people to do what he believes needs to be done, no matter whether it's good for them or not. So is Dumbledore a villain? (gasps) I like the idea of Dumbledore as a deity. I think that Dumbledore is an Old Testament god. You would. I I do. (laughs) Dumbledore is like a fierce, mighty, terrifying, awesome in the like terrifying sense of awesome. Yeah, like awe-inspiring. Yeah, Dumbledore is that kind of person. So does that make him a villain? Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what what we know about deities is that they often behave villainously. 
So yeah, I don't think that he is exclusively a villain um, in the way that we are led to believe that Tom Riddle is exclusively a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, for sure. I also I also stand by my position from way, way back that Dumbledore is a Slytherin. Because I remember at the time you were like, I think he's a Hufflepuff. And I was like, I'm really interested in that. But like at this point... Slytherin. Oh, God. Yeah, he will use people however it's necessary in a way that is not particularly brave because he makes other people do his dirty work for him. He's so manipulative. And, you know, particularly if we think of that chapter where Harry meets with Dumbledore as in Harry's head, you know, that leaves us just with this image of Dumbledore as just a brilliant, powerful, almost omniscient Mm -hmm. figure who just uses people as pawns and that the final outcome of what he has done is good. Mm -hmm. Like it results in Voldemort's downfall. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the meantime, like Dumbledore says, you know, he didn't anticipate that Voldemort would think that he had to take the elder wand from Snape. And he's like, yeah, that didn't really work out how I planned. (laughs) It was like, Snape fucking died because you made one small mistake. Because when you play a game with people's lives, Mm -hmm. then if you make a tiny error, people die. But on the other hand, a lot of people who would have died didn't die Mm -hmm. because of the things that Dumbledore did. Because of the way he set things up. So yeah, I like your reading of him as like that Old Testament god. He's like, listen, 40 people go into the desert, not everybody comes out. <laughs> That's how that story ended, right? Yeah. I also want to mention, so there's this, again, in that conversation, Dumbledore says to Harry that he couldn't, he could never let himself be Minister of Magic because he had learned from his own youth that he was too easily seduced by power mm. and couldn't be trusted with it. Being the headmaster of Hogwarts did not prevent him from wielding an inappropriate amount of power. Had he meaningfully believed that he was somebody who needed to be separated from power, he would have chosen a different job than headmaster of the school where every single witch and wizard in all of the UK is educated. <laughs> like, that's, that is not a convincing passing up of power, Dumbledore. No, no, not at all. I also, I mean, I I think that this might transition us into talking about Snape, but I also think it's worth talking about how, like, viciously Dumbledore manipulates Snape, right? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, the memories we see in the Pensieve, like, the way he treats Snape is is vicious. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is really interesting because when we have had memories of Dumbledore defending Snape or just seeing Dumbledore defend Snape to Harry, two other characters... Dumbledore has seemed very on Snape's side. But like behind closed doors, Dumbledore clearly does not think that Snape is a good guy. Like he treats him like crap. Dumbledore is like, you guys need to go easy on him because I have been brutal. (laughs) Like, trust me, he's suffered. I made sure of it. Okay, so, so Snape. So when we were just sort of shooting the shit before we started recording you hannah had pointed out i think you were correct that anyone who reads snape as a romantic hero read the series wrong oh sure did <laughs> oh my god i've never really understood the sympathy for snape and the the sort of um the way in which people are attached to the narrative of snape and lily 
I mean, that line where, you know, Dumbledore finds out that Snape's Patronus is a doe, doe, and Snape and Dumbledore are talking. This is one of the memories. And Snape has found out that Dumbledore is planning on killing Harry, (laughs) letting Harry die whatever potato potato and Snape says I've, I've spied for you and lied for you put myself in mortal danger for you everything was supposed to be to keep lily potter's son safe and dumbledore says but this is touching severus have you grown to care for the boy after all for him shouted snape expecto patronum and the silver doe comes out um and dumbledore says after all this time and snape says always And that, you know, that sort of undying nature of Snape's devotion to Lily Evans is a romantic story for a lot of people. Snape and Lily's relationship is a messed up, abusive relationship of a person who is, again, a sort of anti-muggle-born supremacist, a violent character, vicious towards muggles, hateful who treats Lily as an exception Mm -hmm. when she says to him, you are doing terrible things. You are siding with terrible people. Be better. And he ignores her. He makes no effort to grow as a person. He ultimately supports the regime that directly leads to her death. Mm -hmm. And in the wake of it, doesn't meaningfully become a better person just remains fanatically devoted to her as an object he wanted to own Mm -hmm. and never got to have. And his, you know, his heroism insofar as it's heroism, ultimately to me reads as selfishness. There's no kindness in it. There's no empathy in it. There's no learning in it. There's no growing in it. You know, his dying words are look at me Mm -hmm. because he wants to see the eyes of the person who he wanted I'm sorry, guys. I know that this is going to, for a lot of listeners, that this is going to not sit well with you because I'm sure for a lot of you, this is a beautiful love story, but it just grossed me the fuck out. (laughs) I agree with you. Probably more moderately. I do agree with you more moderately. And I want to complicate, I want to complicate your reading. How dare you? I know, I know, I know. Just like a little bit though. Just a little bit. And... pointing out that Snape's been abused. It, I was going to start with that. <laughs> it was. I was going to start with the fact that Snape's muggle father terrorized both him and his mother. And I think that that is like a really key factor in his hatred for muggles. And it's not one that I excuse, but it's one that I understand. So like at the same time, if we think about the way that muggle that muggles have stood in for other kinds of othered groups, you would never extend that to be like, well, so-and-so's person of color father terrorized him and his mother, so therefore his racism is acceptable. You would never say that. So it doesn't make it okay. It's also more acceptable in him as a child, right? Mm-hmm. When you see this yeah. this poor child, you know, his moments of viciousness against Petunia, for example, mm-hmm. are pitiful oh, and yeah. sympathetic. Yeah. And yeah, his bullying at the hands of the other boys at Hogwarts makes him a sympathetic character. But then he loses Lily and it breaks his heart and he turns against 
Voldemort and the Death Eaters and becomes a spy for Dumbledore and does an incredibly dangerous and complex Mm -hmm. thing for the rest of his adult life in honor of the memory of Lily Evans while continuing to emotionally abuse muggle-born students at the school where he's a teacher. And that's the breaking point for me, is that if Lily Evans could see the way that he was behaving Mm -hmm. towards his students in his capacity as a teacher, it would horrify her. He does to Hermione exactly what he did to Lily Mm -hmm. to make her turn against him. He's learned nothing. So the other thing that I want to say is that... I don't buy into the Snape holding on to his love for Lily. I get why people think that that's beautiful in the like way that people think that Heathcliff and Catherine or Rochester and, and Jane Eyre are like beautiful love stories, which I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. But like whatever, people are into abusive love stories as a thing. So fine. However, another thing that I want to say to complicate your reading, Hannah, <laughs> is that <laughs> if I may be so bold. So I'm not entirely convinced that it is love for Lily all this time. I think that I think that it's possible to read it that way, but what I actually think it is instead is a combination of grief and guilt. So if we remember that Snape is the most skilled Aquamans, so skilled that he's able to fool Lord Voldemort himself, mm-hmm. I think the thing to keep in mind is what allows him to be so skilled. When we read the book and we get to the part where Dobby dies, and that's the first time that Harry is able to block Voldemort out forever, it's in his grief. And Harry at no point ever recognizes that this is something that Snape is doing. But I think that that's why Snape is able to be such a skilled Occlumens is because he feels guilty and I'm rightly so. Yeah. He feels guilty and he, he uses that grief and holds yeah. on to that grief. And I think that that might also be necessary for his own survival, right? So he has to foster and sustain that grief and that guilt in order to continue doing this work for Dumbledore. That is a totally convincing reading. <gasps> I want to sort of put a pin on that to talk about in Granger Danger when we talk about recurring narratives of um, violence against women, Mm -hmm. because the way that you just described Snape and his relationship to Lily sounds really reminiscent of the relationship between Helena Ravenclaw and the Bloody Baron, who is forced to walk around wearing the chains of his guilt. As a character, I can sympathize with Snape. He's a deeply flawed character, and I think... The thing that makes him unforgivable to me is that I think I think ultimately he believes the things that Voldemort believes. I do think that he is complicit in all of those things. Like I think that he's a bad person. I think that he that his ability to work with Dumbledore does come out of a selfishness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Snape is saying, you know, I don't don't tell anybody that I loved Lily and that this is why I'll protect Harry. And Dumbledore says, oh, you don't want anybody to know about the best of you. And I was like, ah, is this the best of him? Ah, he's really good at magic. That might be the best of him. So good at potions, right? Oh, so, it's just super good. Yeah. Super good wizard. Uh, yeah, I am suspicious of 
the ways in which the fandom has picked up the character of Snape and celebrated him mm-hmm. as this sort of romantic hero. But then as we've just discussed, he fits really well into the trope of the romantic slash gothic hero, mm-hmm. which is a trope that we both find repulsive. <laughs> like repulsive. Disgusting. Yeah, yeah. So like ultimately the point is that I I do agree with you. I just yeah. really like complicating your readings to troll you. how you can get nostalgic even for things that are kind of terrible you know like even if it's full of giant spiders and systemic oppression i still just want to go for one last walk in the forbidden forest mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yeah, let's talk about Fenrir Greyback. Because we have two werewolves in this Mm -hmm. series. We have... We have Remus Lupin and we have Fenrir Greyback, and they are two polar opposites. But the way in which they are treated by their respective communities are quite similar, right? Like, we never really see people abuse Lupin, but we see the effects of their abuse. We see see Lupin lose his fucking job immediately the second somebody knows he's a werewolf. Mm -hmm. But we see the way that uh, Bellatrix Lestrange treats Fenrir Greyback, right? Like in in the chapter Malfoy Manor when he's there, even the Malfoys like initially don't even apparently recognize him and he has to be like, oh, you know who I am. I bet you're signed. He's a werewolf now. Okay, so for one, he's disgusting. He's like a disgusting sexual predator. The way that he talks about Hermione and how uh, he enjoys the softness of the skin. Like, that's so gross. He's so gross. And also then the fact that when they're at Malfoy Manor, Bellatrix Lestrange uh, forces him into a kneeling position. It's it's pretty, like, the way that she treats him is pretty vile. He's also really vile. These two things, yeah. they don't cancel each other out. So we've talked in the past about uh, werewolfism being a metaphor for HIV. And I just want to point to this one thing, this one description of him where uh, oh. Harry notices that Greyback has pointed brown teeth and sores at the corner of his mouth. And it's just such a like really clear and disturbing metaphor for like sexual predation and a lack of decency like it's really it's like so it's the the image of the source at the corner of the mouth are an image that's associated with um stis or with hiv and aids and it's using that like a sort of symptom of a disease or an infection as shorthand for a sign of viciousness or evil or moral corruption Mm -hmm. i mean it's doing exactly the thing that you've been pointing out but it's doing it in a very disturbing way which is again we've talked about the way that this book tends to use shorthands to Mm -hmm. make characters legible shorthands that are themselves really politically problematic 
Yeah, yeah. And like the thing is that like he's he's bad and he's evil. We could have just left it at pointed brown teeth. That would have been sufficient. But yeah. the fact that it's drawing on like infections that he has acquired that are similar to uh, infections that people acquire through sexual contact is like really bothersome to me. It like really makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Like pointed brown teeth is like you're a werewolf. The long yellow fingernails like he makes people uneasy because unlike Lupin who attempts to pass Mm -hmm. during the day Fenrir does not make any attempt to pass and so he is monstrous appearing to other people. But the sores are just that's not a werewolf trope. No. That's that's, yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's an illness trope. Yeah. I, I just had this moment where it occurred to me how similar grayback sounds to bareback. <laughs> oh, no. And you know what? That could have been an accident. There were no accidents. Mm. So speaking of horrifying turns of phrase... Uh, let's talk about house elves in this final portion. But then we also need to talk about like the final outcomes of Hermione's series long defense of house elves. Is it the fact that it culminates in her making it with Ron? Yeah, it's that thing. It's that thing that ultimately politics become a way for two white people to fall in love with each other, not the happy conclusion of Hermione's protesting the state of house elves is that Ron finally shifts from mocking her for it to also thinking about house elves and worrying about them. And then that is the thing that leads to their first kiss. Yeah, She rewards him with her hot bod. There's no reference to them after that, do they? Are they all freed? Uh, is Are those centuries of internalized oppression that makes them consent to their own slavery overcome via this one battle at Hogwarts when, when the next generation of students goes to Hogwarts? Do they go to a Hogwarts where they take turns doing kitchen duty because they need to make their own fucking food? Like, what? Does anything come of this? I mean, the... Like, the best that I think we can imagine is that they are all, like, paid a wage. That they continue to do that kind of, like, servant labor, but that they're paid for it. Bell Hooks, in a really wonderful chapter of, I think, Everyday Feminism, I believe it is called, about rethinking labor, talks about how... The answer to the devaluation of particular forms of labor that are usually practiced by predominantly by women of color is not to start paying a wage for that kind of labor. It's to radically reshape our understanding of what kinds of labor have value and which kinds don't. Mm -hmm. And that paying the house elves to continue to live secretly in the basement and cook for all of these students who never have to think about where their food comes from is not going to have produce any form meaningful revaluation of the labor no. that they're performing. No. No. But is a realistic outcome in the capitalist system that we live under. Thanks, capitalism. Yay! Let's talk about masculinity and grief. Okay. Let's talk about how sad it was when Dobby died and the way that the men 
like with their sadness. Yes. The men, you know, the only, it's Luna who finds some actual language mm-hmm. to articulate what Dobby meant to them. What the men do is dig a grave. And they dig it without magic because they want to feel it. That moment where Harry is like using his wand to like painfully stroke by stroke etch an inscription into the grave. And then he says, you know, Hermione could have done it more gracefully, but he won. You know, like it's this implication that like women may grieve more gracefully, more eloquently, more decorously, but like men's grief is gritty. It's dirty. They use their hands to grieve. It was a bit like I understand that like masculinity is a trap and that these are all male characters who have been raised within a sort of heteropatriarchal culture that makes forms of grieving inaccessible to them and that these are the forms of grieving that they have available. But it was it was so emphatically masculine the way that they were expressing their grief. Mm-hmm. No, you're yeah. totally right. Yeah. yeah. So we also need. Oh, do, 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 the longest fucking Jew watch of all time. Are you ready for this? I think so. Are there any Jews in this book? Well, as we mentioned, Anthony Goldstein makes a cameo. So that's great. And there's a lot of like deep interacting with goblins that uh-huh. happens. And you know what? Everything that Anthony Goldstein does to like make Jews not goblins in this series is undermined by the incredibly Semitic representation of Griphook and like what we come to learn about goblins as a people in this section. So will you walk us through what is particularly like a sort of Semitic or anti-Semitic trope in the representation of Griphook? Yeah. So there's like so there's lots of stuff that we've talked about before which which remains constant, right? Mm-hmm. So his like swarthiness, his short stature, his hooked like nose. his hooked nose, his his uh skill with money. Mm-hmm. Um all of those things remain constant. There's also the fact that he uh won't eat the same food as everybody else in Shell Cottage and requires a special diet. Which, when I read that, I was like, could you, (laughs) could we just not, for those who are not super familiar with Orthodox Judaism, what that read to me was that he requires kosher meals. Mm -hmm. Um, However, truly, truly kosher abiding people would never eat from the kitchen of somebody who is making trafe meals, which is non-kosher food. Nevertheless, the fact that Griphook requires uh, separate meals served to him separately, the fact that he won't eat with the Gentiles, for lack of a better term, and the fact that he needs separate food separate from the Gentiles is just such a such a deeply anti-Semitic representation of this goblin. So there's that. And then there is the quick education that Bill gives to Harry about how goblins understand ownership. And it's not a direct parallel in any way, but it really rung through as a kind of Shylock-esque lesson in lending 
in in money it's lending it's about lending it is yeah, yeah it was 100% about lending and about the fact that if you cross the Jew with whom you have struck up this deal he will cut your flesh off yeah. he will take a pound of flesh and if you die so be it that's yeah. your fault it's like Jews believe in lending things mm -hmm. and they are the ones who believe they are linked explicitly i mean goblins are linked explicitly to lending while wizards are linked explicitly to ownership mm -hmm. and clearly one of those is treated as more legitimate than the other mm -hmm. it was a it was a troubling read yeah this is the thing that i'm trying to sort of work through in the representation of of grip hook is the reason why grip hook trusts harry in the first place is that harry is somebody who like he's a, an unusual kind of wizard, somebody who treats, you know, non-wand bearers with decency. Mm -hmm. And yet Harry's dislike of Griphook throughout the, all of their interactions is palpable. So it's like Harry wants to be good and decent and compassionate and understanding of difference, but consistently when he comes face to face with meaningful forms of difference with different understandings of the world, he responds with discomfort, um, with revulsion, with dishonesty, with disrespect. I do not understand why at no point Harry suggested to Griphook, like, we need to use the sword to destroy two things, just two two things could we just use it to destroy those two things and then i will give it to you at no point he was just like mm, i'm just gonna be really unclear about yeah. when he'll get it back like harry no that's a bad idea mm -hmm. and he the thing that you know we have been discussing goblins as trading on a lot of anti-semitic tropes and i think that that is the strongest and clearest reading but the discussions of ownership and different understandings of ownership actually also made me really think about conflicts in intellectual ownership and cultural ownership in relations between indigenous and settler culture and the way that different cultures have radically different understandings of ownership and the response to that on the part of the white imperial subject tends to default to dishonesty mm -hmm. to manipulation and you know, the fact that ultimately that Grip Hook steals the sword when he gets a chance and takes off was like, yeah, absolutely, Grip Hook, you were right. They were going to fuck you over. Mm -hmm. Like, they were absolutely not going to hold up their end of the deal. Their own dishonesty makes me so curious about why Ron holds so tightly to wizarding history, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, if we think about his arguments with Grip Hook in terms of two narratives of history ron being dependent on the wizarding master narrative and grip hook being familiar with the goblin version of history which is one of being taken advantage of it's so surprising to me that at no point does ron like connect those two at no point is he like well we're willing to do this no. so maybe godric gryffindor did steal the sword but then the other really significant thing that happens is that they steal the sword back. Grippo gets the sword and reclaims it according to goblin understandings of ownership. And then Neville pulls that fucking sword out of the sorting hat. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we can I think we can blame Godric Gryffindor for putting an enchantment on that sword that will prevent it from ever going back into the hands of goblins. And so we can say that Godric Gryffindor is a fundamentally thieving monster. Yeah. yeah, but then that also ties into this larger narrative that's only being alluded to here, but this problem of the special status of wizards and their possession of wands and the idea of wizards as having this special form of magic that makes them powerful that they refuse to share with other people. Even though ultimately Griphook got that sword back fair and square. Um, I mean, he took it earlier. Like, he did fuck them over, but they had promised him that sword. Mm-hmm. And he got them into that safe. Mm-hmm. Vault? Vault? Vault. Vault. Got them into that vault. But it was meaningless. That exchange was meaningless because wizards have magical power that allows them to lie to other people and do whatever they like because that sword was enchanted to always come out of a hat when you need it which that then as this is extra textual but thinking about the revelations in some of jk rowling's updates on pottermore that african wizards and indigenous wizards don't use wands Mm -hmm. and that wands were a european invention Mm -hmm. so that wands are linked not just to wizard supremacy over non-wizard others, but specifically to like white European wizard supremacy over all the rest of the magical community, wizard or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that wands become this very powerful symbol of like a violent form of power Mm -hmm. and coercion that allows wizards to decide what's right and what's wrong, what forms of ownership count and which forms don't. Wands are the thing that lets you control the master narrative. P.S. It's no coincidence that they're also dicks. Yeah, like that's the thing. We talk about how wands are dicks. Wands at this point very clearly are also guns and guns are dicks. Guns are more dicks than wands are because guns are more real than wands are. Guns and wands are dicks. We'll draw you a diagram if you're still confused. Goblins and house elves and centaurs aren't the only non-magical or non-wizard subjects who we see excluded from wizarding culture by the lack of wands because we have the wandless and this very clear sense of hierarchies between who gets a wand and who doesn't. Like that's a, a driving theme of this book is who gets access to wands and who doesn't, which culminates, obviously, in the fact that the entire final confrontation between Harry and Voldemort is about a wand and who has the right to own it. But it's ultimately about, like, which cock is bigger, because it's like, oh, well, you think that you defeated Dumbledore, but actually Dumbledore was defeated by Malfoy and I defeated Malfoy so actually I get to own this wand and you don't which in a lot of ways just seems to reinforce the simplistic equation of wands equals power without actually paying attention to what's been happening elsewhere in the book which is you've seen how the sort of systemic exclusion of people from the right to have wands is a form of centralization of power around a select few Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other main place where we see that is the relationship between Petunia and Lily, mm-hmm. who I felt like in those memories, if there's anybody who Snape's memories made me feel more sympathetic towards, it was Petunia. Yeah. I was like, she loved her sister mm-hmm. and was devastated to be told that her sister was fundamentally other from her mm-hmm. and had to go somewhere else where Petunia couldn't also go. Imagine being a little kid who's 
sister is your best friend yeah. and then being told like oh your sister's special and she's going to go to another special school and you can't go yeah. and that revelation that petunia wrote to dumbledore and asked if she could also come to hogwarts oh is so fucking devastating to me in no way legitimated the way that she treats harry obviously mm-hmm. but it certainly made her resentment make sense in yeah. other ways yeah yeah like if she in order to overcome that grief she obviously chose the path of like mm-hmm. hatred mm-hmm. and you know what that's a that is a very real thing that people do in order to get over things mm-hmm. that have made them heartbroken we're going to transition there but before we get there i i guess in this conversation about like wands equals cox equals guns equals cox equals wands i guess so like it's so obvious that wands are dicks in the series and that power is concentrated in like who has the bigger more predatory dick and i i think that that is so important to keep in mind when we're also looking at the backdrop of sexual violence Mm -hmm. that's taking place in these books um and the fact that just because you give women wands does not mean that you have eradicated gender-based violence right so you like you give women tools that are equal to the tools that are being used to disempower them. Surprise, it doesn't actually eliminate that kind of violence. Mm-hmm. Well, this is speaking of the failure to eliminate these forms of violence. We already talked when we were talking about the last book about reading Voldemort as a sort of inevitable conclusion of a culture that is based on irrevocable difference and otherness between wizards and non-wizards which is clearly in this book focusing around the wand. Despite Dumbledore's claim that the Elder Wand is the least of the Hallows, it's ultimately the Hallow that features in the climax of the book. So the narrative disagrees with Dumbledore. But uh, the epilogue is the only glimpse that we get of what wizarding culture looks like after the fall of Voldemort. And it's it's not a utopian vision of the future. It is a like a return to the status quo. And in the status quo, the sort of casual animosity between Gryffindors and Slytherins, between Muggleborns and Purebloods remains. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, that funny aside joke that Ron makes to Rose about how she better not fall in love with a Pureblood because her grandfather will be, will never forgive her for that. Um, so that, you know, that idea... The, those with wands versus those without wands, things don't seem to have gotten better. Like these basic structures of violence that shape the world that they live in, that shape the world we live in, ultimately remain. This isn't a book about making a better world. It's just a book about overcoming one particular fascist regime and returning to the status quo. Sorry, that was a bummer. Oh. It's our last episode, so, like, what does it matter? Well, hey, it just occurred to me. If we're not making the podcast anymore, then I guess our friendship is over, too. That's a shame. It's been real. I liked you. (laughs) But I guess before we part, we could reminisce about the good old feminist times in Granger Danger. Okay.
So before we get into the main content of this segment, I just want to say as an aside, the image of Fleur Delacour, fabulous, brilliant, stylish French woman, her school's representative in the Triwizard Tournament, clearly a powerful witch, turning into a fucking apron-wearing housewife, living in a cottage in the middle of nowhere, making casseroles. Just bleak. It was bleak. I was like, why? Why aren't Fleur and Bill cooking dinner together? Like, they're a young couple. Harry actually comments that Fleur in the kitchen in an apron making casseroles and freaking out about the welfare of people reminds him of Mrs. Weasley. And I was like, no fucking kidding, because she's she's fallen into exactly the same fucking gender trap that Mrs. Weasley fell into, the gendered labor of the resistance in which this powerful witch has to just make casseroles. But it was just that image, like the fact that Bill doesn't help with the cooking. Mm-hmm. Just... Oh, did it get under my skin? Oh, man. You know what's really effective about that is the reminder that children of like really intensely old fashioned gendered families mm-hmm. will very easily reproduce those gender dynamics. So, this is a lesson to everyone out there who is in love. I want you to look very closely at the relationship of your lover's parents. And think hard and fast about whether you want that for you. And if you don't, say something now. You can say no. You can say, you make the fucking casserole. Or let's not eat casserole. Casserole's gross. We alluded already to the fact that there is a major sort of recurring trope throughout this book, but particularly through this this last third of it, of sexual violence, of like just a sort of intense attention to rape culture in the wizarding world. And there's, I guess, now that we add one on, there's five examples. So to start off, we've got Fenrir Greyback and his attention to Hermione and the sort of naturalization of that of those three children Hermione is the one who is most available to that kind of sexualized predatory violence Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that she is the same age as the other two people and that he's going to eat her surely Harry and Ron have skin equally soft yeah and are equally made out of meat so that is, again, a sort of a naturalization of, of rape culture, of mm-hmm. women as sort of being the default victims. Mm-hmm. The second major one is the revelation about what happened to Ariana, yeah. to Dumbledore's little sister. Yeah, the book doesn't explicitly state that the muggle boys assaulted her sexually, but Aberforth refers to them as getting carried away. And I think we've all heard enough stories about what happens when young men get carried away with some kind of victim Mm -hmm. that we can put that together on our own. They force their way through the hedge and when she couldn't show them the trick, they got a bit carried away trying to stop the little freak doing it. And that, that language of like, they tried to force her to show them something and then got carried away trying to 
impose something like that assault was physical for sure Mm -hmm. but i i read that as implicitly sexual violence as well and so the revelation that ariana wasn't you know a squib who's being hidden by her family but somebody who suffered a traumatic sexual assault in her youth that resulted in like lifelong severe Mm -hmm. um trauma is a really dark revelation I think, too, the fact that their father attacked the boys, that is also a pretty accurate reflection of how effective the legal system is in dealing with sexual violence. I guess I I think that it's really telling that they didn't go to the police about it, right? They didn't go to the, like, wizarding cops to be like, hey, this happened. Yeah. Probably because there was no point. So the third revelation in the Pensieve is something that Lily says to Snape when they're teenagers, talking about one of Snape's disgusting Death Eater friends. Um, and she says, you know what he did to Mary MacDonald. And Snape is like, oh, that was just a laugh. You're like, oh, that's funny. That's exactly what rape culture is. That's so like, that is a good, solid example. Like, oh, he, you saw that he like pinched her breast in the hallway and like he's just he's just joking around that's exactly the same thing it's disgusting the next example is helena ravenclaw's Mm. story um which i found this shocking um so helena ravenclaw tells the story about how she stole her mother's diadem and ran away to albania with it and that her mother sent after this man who was in love with her knowing that he would be relentless in tracking her down and that when he found her and she refused to go back with him he murdered her in a rage and that man was the bloody baron which means that helena ravenclaw is forced to haunt a castle alongside the man who murdered her because she refused his sexual advances and is forced to like fucking attend like opening ceremonies. Like, like they're there in the same great hall being the mascots for their various houses. Also PS Slytherin's ghost mascot is a fucking murderer, which is really, really messed up. But that like the casualness of that story of, Helena being like, yeah, 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 no, he totally murdered me because I turned him down. And now he wears chains out of guilt, which is, as I was saying earlier, that's the the fifth example is Snape's relationship to Lily Mm -hmm. and the way that he is much like the Baron, somebody who did something really, really terrible to the woman he loved. Mm -hmm. In this case, working with the regime that resulted in her being murdered. And wears these chains of guilt as though that helps. I think if there's one thing that leaves me angry about these books, it's the way that they hold up and reinforce romantic notions of men's violence against women. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what else I have to say uh, uh, other than noting these things and being like, hey, guys, rape culture is a thing. Surprise! <laughs> Bet you didn't know. Uh. <laughs> However, so I remember back in the day we were talking about which was the previous book that you said women were really, really important in? The sixth book, I 
think. Okay. I think it was the sixth book. Great. So this is the seventh book and women are also incredibly important in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also, it continues the trend that we've seen of Harry's shift away from a focus on his father and his relationship Mm -hmm. to his father and increasingly towards a focus on his mother. And we really see that coming to uh, the forefront in, you know, the fact that one of the final chapters is all of these revelations about Lily. Um, And the closest we get, I'm frustrated that all we ever really get to see of Lily is Snape's perception of Lily. But nonetheless, Mm. I think that we do just get to see a lot about Lily as a person. I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said about the revelation that she stays best friends with Snape for a long time. You know, somebody who the rest of the school is rejecting, but she stays on the side of. Um, But the thing that really struck me, so it's Harry has used the Resurrection Stone and all of his loved ones have come back to him. And I just had to stop reading and weep for a while. And it goes through them and it talks about, you know, he sees James and then he sees Sirius and then he sees Lupin. And then he looks at Lily last and it says... She pushed her long hair back as she drew close to him, and her green eyes, so like his, searched his face hungrily as though she would never be able to look at him enough. He could not speak, his eyes feasted on her, and he thought that he would like to stand and look at her forever, and that would be enough. She's also the person who he asks to stay close to him. Obviously, we both have mommy issues. (laughs) man but that's i mean that is here's one of the reasons why that is really powerful to me the shitty freudian version of our relationship with our parents says that there is something infantile juvenile immature about emotional proximity to the mother Mm -hmm. that that is something that you like outgrow and that particularly the sort of naturalization of like boys are close to their mothers when they're young and then they grow out of that and become close to their fathers and This whole series reverses that Mm -hmm. in a really profound way that when Harry is young and immature, he identifies with his father because he looks like him. You know, he gets all these memories about how his father was like fun and outgoing and mischievous and like, but ultimately it's his mother from whom he gets strength in these final moments. It's his mother who is the one he is most hungry for. She is the one who gives him the strength that he needs to do the real meaningful forms of heroism that he has to perform at the end of this book. That comes from her because she is the one who knows how to sacrifice. Because the thing that Lily did for him in the moment of giving up her life is the thing that he has to do for the people he loves. And ultimately, finding out that he, in sacrificing himself for his loved ones, has enacted the same magic that she did. That he has Mm -hmm. learned that these incredibly feminine forms of magic that are about community and love and care are the ultimately the forms of magic that he also enacts you know when we sort of read that back against that like oh the final scene's all about cocks (laughs) but it is also about him having sort of repeated this final gesture of his mother's Mm -hmm. and that being a really powerful gesture that allows him to keep his loved ones safe Mm I think it is also telling that in the pensive, we get that moment where Dumbledore says to Snape that he's much more like his mother than like his father. And this is the only time in the entire series that we've gotten that. Like all throughout the series, all of the people in Harry's life are like, you're so very like your father. But then at the end, with the person who 
we're told understands him the most, he's saying, no, he's more like his mother. So it's Granger Danger and we've said like nothing about Hermione. When we were guest lecturing in Derek Mason's children's lit class, there was a student who asked about the idea of Hermione being the real hero of these books. And I think I, I think at one point I was willing to to argue that she was. Um, but no, I'm not I'm not sure. I think that Hermione's contribution to the defeat of Voldemort is parallel with very few. But I do think in the end, as much as the book makes it about community slash makes it about Harry, I don't think that Hermione stands out any more than other major figures. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the female figure who gets the most amazing moment in those final battles obviously is Mrs. Weasley. Yeah. Not my daughter, you bitch. Which also made me cry when I read it. I was like, I was a fucking wreck by the end of this reading this book. Like... Oh, man. But it is like there are lots of fucked up aspects to gender in this book. The feminized labor, the ways in which women are reduced to particular roles in political resistance, their availability to sexual violence, the fixation of the narrative on dicks. Like, I mean, lots of stuff going on that is troubling. But also, I think in these final chapters, as we see Harry take his final stand against Voldemort, there are all kinds of ways in which that final stand is sustained and inspired and made possible by the powerful women in his life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, shout out to Lily Evans. I would read the fuck out of a prequel novel entirely about her. Yeah, me too. I know, I know, we've been calling the segment final all along, but today, it really is. It's our actual final, final revisions. So I have some questions for you. My first question doesn't entirely pertain to the last third of the book. And it is about, well, it's about the fact that Dumbledore and Grindelwald were like 17, 18, Mm -hmm. when they had these grandiose plans of crushing muggles under their feet and stuff isn't a little fascist when they're 18 well this was going to be my question to you my question was what bad ideas did you have at 17 and 18 like really bad and i'll share some with you after when i was 18 i loudly and proudly proclaimed myself to be somebody who didn't care about politics who thought that they were really boring and thought that it was totally possible to be somebody who really loved literature and didn't care at all about politics. I didn't understand my own political system. I didn't care about voting. I didn't care about understanding the different parties and their policies. I made no attempt to understand the history of colonialism, race violence, feminism. Like, you know, I sort of consumed some of that stuff via my parents But I was not, like, I was apolitical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was really similar. I had, like, a lot of really stupid ideas about rape and about gender. I had some, like, really stupid ideas about what it meant to undergo um, surgery to change sexes. 
I'm actually like, I'm really deeply ashamed of a lot of the things that I believed when I was like 18, even 19 and, and 20. Um, and so like when I read this book and I read about these stupid ideas that Dumbledore and Grindelwald had, um, I, I get what Harry's saying about how they were the same age, <laughs> but like not every 17 and 18 year old is right in their convictions. Oh yeah. I mean, my bad convictions were lack of conviction, not allegiance with terrible, terrible things. But that said, when you're a white middle class person, you have the luxury of a conviction that's a lack of conviction. Mm -hmm. And I would say being like a white settler living in Canada, a sort of lack of caring about the implications of my presence in this country is itself a form of violence. Okay, I'll only ask one other question. How do the epigraphs interact with the book for you? Okay, I'm just going to read these epigraphs. Wow, these are epigraphs about death. That's really interesting. That's really... Okay, so, I mean, everybody just go read the epigraphs. It's a excerpt from Aeschylus's The Libation Bearers, and then from William Penn's More Fruits of Solitude. But they both are about death, and about sort of the comforts beyond death and the ways in which those who are dead remain with us. And that does a couple of interesting things. One, it intensely foreshadows the importance of... Harry's correct use of the uh, resurrection stone as being like a major moment in the kinds of decisions that he makes. Mm -hmm. We know that Harry's, one of Harry's great weaknesses has been his desire to go back, you know, his temptation for the mirror of Erised, his recognition that if he could choose one of the hollows, he would choose the resurrection stone because he wants his family back. Mm -hmm. So that's a major breakthrough for him to like figure out how to have a, a more healthy relationship to death. But it's also interesting when we think about the, um, what's the, the story of the brothers? The, the tale of the three brothers? Is that it? And how in that it's these three brothers meet death. Um, and it's death that gives them the hallows. And Dumbledore says at the end in Harry's head, oh, yeah, like, I think that's just a legend trying to account for actual real objects. That's kind of these, these epigraphs kind of make me a little suspicious of that thing that Dumbledore says. Because mm -hmm. these epigraphs are like, death is going to be a powerful force in this book. Death is something that you need to watch out for. And death is the one who supposedly gave these hallows to the brothers. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. That's why I asked you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 13C of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are, as per usual, available at ohwitchplease.ca. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever platform you prefer. And for the mega fans out there, you can always impress your friends and family by storing your things in a tote bag with our stunning faces on it. So stunning. Check out our merch at society6, that's the number six, dot com slash oh which please, or through the link on our website. Special thanks as always to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? And fond parting waves to everyone who's been tweeting at or about us. El Borgon, Unquiet Brain, 
KRS Rambler, Libby Sometimes, Tall Man on Campus, Recently Sarah, Angela Werner 2, Jeannie Kim, Kirsten Ashley B, Katie Hazenbank, Daniloth, Triceratop, Alan Matley, Neil Politan, Serenity Then. Oh man, Serenity Then, that's so good. Serenity Then! G's Magazine, CC Streeter, Mount Amy, or MT Amy, Chloe H, Trixie Dalek, Rachel Big Eyes, Lisbeth, Red or MC1R, Matt Domville, Aaron Emily Ann, Vic Jones, Patrick Craig, J. Butler Ames, Katerina Hoven, Hannah Kath T, Emily Hoven, Two Bossy Dames, Sophie Biblio, Jess.Roe, Paula Gabrielis, C. Hastings 25, Ms. Laura Lipstick, M. Tobias Z, Terry Lee McGarry, Savannah Goyette, T. Chow Fraser, Proletarian Arts, Mel Dalgleish, Ms. Megan, Lala Toadstone, Caro Poparo, Basil, Andrew Bretz, Cat Manica, Gesticulates, Obscurus Mercury, Claire Russo, Alicia Ardeline, Jenny Fogg, Loose Lefty, Danic Dote, Miss Erg, Nord C. Blau, Marcel Wicker, Sam 82129877, Rosa Bielski, Sensei Sensual, Seen and Heard Yeg, M. Shamberge, Ellen Ora, Jessica S. Rue, A.E. Lang, Edmonton Potter Watch, Tattooed Bakers, Miss Sophia, Lara Mendonca, Yo-Yo M, Jordan Ruth, Lydia Magic, Short to the Point, Is a Grapefruit, Alyssa K.B., Anne Fine, Kendra McEl, Natalia Kismet, Lena Norms, and Flodot. Goodbye forever, beloved listeners. Hey. Hey, did you get the joke? There are totally going to be more episodes. But until then, later, witches! A bead headwarts. Headwarts. <laughs> Being headwarts, hogmaster. Headwarts of hogmaster. Uh, I think it means that he is the keeper of the hogs at headwarts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.